Good morning from Cali, Colombia. This is Global Perspectives. In today's episode, I want to talk about a topic that is relevant to everyone because we're fully depending on this resource. I am talking about water, that transparent and sometimes not so transparent substance that we need to survive. I have invited Dr. David Zetland, a university lecturer at Leiden University College and author of several books related to water, sustainability, and political economy. During the podcast, we discuss a bit about his academic career, about water management, and about how to change and how to make a change when it comes to sustainability. Let's get into it. Thank you, David, for, for being here. Uh, first, I would like to just ask you a bit about um, about your personal background. I, I see that you're a, you're, you're a lecturer at Leiden University College, focused on um, environment, like political economy, uh, environmental issues, um, and water, perhaps um, water governance. So first, first of all, I would like to ask you, um, how did you become interested in these fields of study? And Why did you realize that um, the thing that you wanted to do in your life uh, was to uh, work in academia and uh, focus on these topics? Wow. Okay. Good questions. And I can give long answers, but I'll try and keep it short. So um, the first thing is, is that I, I never thought I wanted to do uh, a graduate degree. Um, I was um, very much against it. I thought it would be kind of a waste of time. And uh, But I uh, went traveling between 25 and 30 years old. Uh, and so those five years, I visited over 60 countries, and um, which was a very good experience, which is why I tell a lot of people they should travel, uh, students especially, or, or, or recent graduates like yourself. Um, and when I came back from traveling, I was working in the Bay Area, And I was not very satisfied with, um, you know, it was the during the dot-com bubble. And so it was, uh, there was a lot of money being thrown around, a lot of crazy businesses, a lot of weird businesses, let's say. And then I um, uh, was work. I started working at a mathematical institute, a research institute at UC Berkeley. <clears throat> and um, there I ran into a whole bunch of PhDs. And these are the very weird PhDs. These are mathematicians. Uh, but uh, in that context, I, under I started to understand more about what PhDs do. And uh, on, the, on the one hand, they just talk uh, a lot. They have a lot of coffee. Uh, they talk about things that no one even understands. Uh, but also they get to explore the world. They get to explore ideas. And I thought uh, when I heard that there was a program of development economics very close by UC Davis, I, I applied to that program. And I wanted to study development economics because I wanted to learn about why some of those countries I had just visited were failing or succeeding. And so, and I was particularly interested in what's called government failure. So market failure is when the market has, uh, in the process of, of doing whatever it does, it creates a failure. So for example, pollution uh, from using cars is a kind of a market failure because that uh, creates local pollution and also uh, drives climate change. And I wanted to look at government failure and government failure is when the government is trying to intervene to fix the market, but it actually makes it worse. Um, and there's other versions of this, but anyway, I wanted to do that. And in particular, and this is what's kind of crazy, I wanted to look at how uh, farmers in the Andes uh, choose whether or not they should grow coca for licit, uh, which is to make tea or other traditional products, or illicit purposes, which is to, to supply the cocaine industry. And I wanted to go talk to farmers in, in the Andes, uh, and I was looking at Peru, um, and uh, a very uh, astute uh, 
a professor said, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you want to die right now, but this sounds like a bad idea. So then I was uh, looking for another topic and uh, and I did visit Peru and found out I would have been totally out of my own um, capability. So I uh, uh, was, was coincidentally talking to uh, my boss, I was doing research over the summer, and he said, hey, there's this water conflict going on in Southern California. And I thought, wow, wait, this is a kind of a government failure because, it, or a governance failure in some ways, right? So I started getting into water and uh, my, my dissertation title summarizes what I did. It was called Conflict and Cooperation Inside of an Organization, right? So it was a case study about how these different members of this water agency are fighting over water, fighting over money. And because they're fighting, there is a governance failure or a government failure in the sense of water being misallocated, money being misallocated, which is bad for um, the citizens of Southern California. And after that, I got into a huge number of variations on uh, water-related topics. Um, and to, to get to your second part of your question, uh, why academia, why uh, et cetera, uh, I'm actually not really interested in doing research as much as I'm interested in teaching. And I think teaching is helpful because, um, you know, students can learn something, they can use those tools, use those skills, use that knowledge, because there's a big difference between skills and knowledge for their whole life. And uh, I'm pretty sure that none of my research papers have had a positive impact compared to my teaching. And I've always liked teaching. So in that sense, I am very lucky to, to be teaching at a liberal arts school where, um, yeah, I can just help the students develop their own selves. And so that's kind of what I've been doing for, yeah, the last six years I've been in LUC. Right, that sounds very interesting, especially because I, I'm also considering a career in academia. But but also when I think about it, I uh, I think I really like I really enjoy teaching, and I think this would be like the highlight of my day. But then uh, I also think, well, if when it comes to doing research, it seems interesting. But it seems that perhaps at some at some point I will I will be a bit bored of doing the re research over I don't know two years in the same topic, uh, which is which seems a bit uh, challenging. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's, a, that's how it that's how it works. You have to do both of them anyways. Yeah, I mean, research is, is kind of good because you can change topics now and then. I've moved from, you know, water cooperatives into uh, environmental uh, water and then into the commons, which is not necessarily water related. So I have been able to move and that type of research is nice and fun. But um, it's usually you're in your office alone and teaching. You're in a, in a room with students interacting, discussing. And also, uh, there's just so much research being produced that it's really hard to get anybody's attention. And that's a real challenge because you might spend, you know, let's say conservatively, you spend three solid months writing a research paper. And then if two people read it, that's kind of a letdown, right? So that's challenging. Yeah, definitely. Uh, now that you, you were mentioning like uh, different topics and how you went from one specific topic to another one, um, I saw in your biography that uh, while the main topics of specialization you have are like the commons, development economics, uh, environmental economics, but also social entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, um, I also have like two questions. So the first one would be, um, how did you relate um, all these kind of different types of topics in order to um, make like good research, and is it like possible in academia? Then is it like is it like um, seen well that you go from one topic and then you focus in a topic that is in a topic that is a bit different? And then my second question is a bit about multidisciplinarity. So I I guess because you work with political economy with environmental mm -hmm. uh, economics, I guess you're also familiar and you 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 you're interested in multidisciplinary multidisciplinarity which is very interesting for me because at least what I 
what I see sometimes is that I'm not really uh, focused. I'm not really like a fan of one specific discipline, for instance. I'm not like, oh, I'm 100% uh, in love with economics, but I like a bit of different disciplines. So how do people see multidisciplinarity in academia? Is it seen as something that you should do, you shouldn't do? Is it encouraged or not encouraged, at least in your fields of study? Yeah, so I'll answer that last one first, and I'll go back to your first one. So um, first of all, the academic world hates multi-trans interdisciplinary work, uh, and that is because um, the most journals are are organized around a discipline, right? So there's going to be a journal of, uh, actually, it's the Journal of Political Economy, believe it or not, is all about economics. There's no politics in it, right? Um, and you can go down in many, many different disciplines and have that discussion. Um, and, and, and that's a, a real challenge for people that want to do, uh, you know, let's call it ex-disciplinary, whether it's trans, multi, or interdisciplinary work. Um, and, and then if you want to get a, a but on the other hand, you might get a grant proposal to work on a big project. It's going to be an interdisciplinary team. Uh, so you might be, I might be the economist there, but I'm going to work with the biologist, for example, or I might work with the geologist, uh, geographer, let's say. So uh, in teams, you can do quite a lot of interdisciplinary work and grant money can drive that. But it's really hard sometimes because we approach topics from different angles with different uh, tools. And it's, you know, it can take a long time to understand what someone's actually trying to say to you. Uh, and that's kind of strange because it should be easy to explain because that's our actual job. But uh, a lot of academics are so far down the so-called rabbit hole into their little teeny nitty gritty kind of disciplines that they forget to make it real, to make it usable. Um, and the reason, the way I explain uh, any of these ex-disciplinary kinds of, of teams is that they should be organized and focused around solving problems. And uh, I always tell students, if you know, if you want to see problems being solved, go to McDonald's. There you have a very interdisciplinary team. You've got someone on the cash register, you've got customer service, you've got food supply chains, you've got uh, cooking temperatures, you've got you know safety, et cetera. You've got logistics. Everything is working because they're just trying to get you that burger for 92 cents. And this is why, and this is why, what's crazy, the, the non-academic world never talks about multidisciplinary work. The non-academic world talks about solving problems. The academic world talks about it because they can't really do anything about it and they're constantly paralyzed. So that is a really big uh, challenge. And, and you know, we could talk more, but let me get to your other question, which is how do I kind of relate all these topics to each other? I, I, I pursue topics that I'm interested in. This is the luxury of an academic lifestyle uh, or job or career. Um, and uh, it's, it's difficult to have one, remember. A, a huge number of PhDs don't work in the academic world, either because they don't want to or they can't get a job, right? And some fields are terrible. They have 10 PhDs for one academic position. So um, I'm lucky, I, I, I have a job, uh, and I'm bring, I approach most topics, like, for example, entrepreneurship or, or uh, the environment. So those are topics, but I approach it as an economist. So I bring in what are the economic tools, right? Where are the incentives? Where are the choices and so on? So that's kind of a consistency that I have across these topics. Um, and I do have examples of where some weird area that I am working on does have bring some insights to a different area, which seems not related at, at all, right? So when I talk about, for example, social entrepreneurship, that's an area where, um, you know, a, a, a business, not a business really, it's an organization is trying to deliver value that is kind of a public value, usually that they can't get paid for, right? So they need to get paid somewhere else. Uh, and sometimes they might earn money from one business and that subsidizing their social mission. Um, and 
that social mission falls into this category of the commons, which is something I got into from the water side of things, right? So I can bring my insights from the water, water and the commons into understanding how entrepreneurs are trying to work in the commons. And in that sense, I can actually use my different interests in the same setting. All right, that sounds very interesting. Um, now I would like to focus a bit more on your field of study, that is to say uh, water and water governance. So um, I have a couple of questions, so I'm just going to start with the first one and then we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, how do you see the distribution of water uh, in the future? That is to say something like in five to ten years, um, like first of all, well, that, I guess the first question would be uh, for the audience that don't know a lot about water, mm -hmm. uh, how is how good or bad is water distributed around the world? Perhaps if we can focus in uh, developing countries or maybe you have an area specialization, you can sure. talk about it. And then how do you see this happening in uh, five to 10 years in the future? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think the first place to start is, is with the bad news. Um, the amount of water, uh, fresh water especially, this is, so we want fresh, clean water. That's the water that's valuable. There's plenty of water in the sea, uh, but it's salty and uh, not very handy for a lot of human uses. So the amount of fresh, clean water is actually falling. It's considered to be a renewable resource, but it's being used in a non-renewable way. For example, by taking groundwater that is not being uh, uh, replenished very fast out of the ground. So you take it out of the ground faster than it's being put back in. That is called mining. It's the same as mining for coal or for copper. Uh, and when you mine that water, and it doesn't get replaced, it, it does end up in the ocean, but um, then it's not there for the farmer next year. It's not there for the ecosystem next year. So the total supply of water is falling. Climate change is making the water supply also completely chaotic uh, in terms of bigger tropical storms than ever, longer droughts, etc. So the supply side is terrible. The demand side is also terrible. So, uh, and that's because there's more people on the planet who have more money, and a lot of the water is used for agriculture. And when people have more money, they buy, for example, more meat, and meat requires much, much more water than, uh, for example, grain uh, products or uh, the so-called vegetarian diet versus a meat-eating diet. And so more people with a higher demand for water uh, and less water around with chaotic supply means that the chances of shortages are greater and greater. That's the starting, that's the big macro perspective. Then what you have is um, you look inside of different countries and you have some countries that prioritize water management, uh, for example, uh, Singapore, uh, Israel, and the Netherlands, because water is a national security concern and they give it a high priority. Other countries, they take water for granted, uh, potentially Colombia, I don't know, uh, but also uh, the US very, very much so, uh, and almost every country you can think of, Spain, I mean, I, the whole list, China everywhere, like pretty much everywhere, but uh, uh, like 10% of countries in the world. So then what you have is uh, they're not paying attention to the water management, and that means it's being mismanaged primarily in two ways. One is that they are not recognizing the water that everybody shares, so that's the collective water, the commons water, uh, and that can be water in the environment. Uh, and the other thing is that they're not, they're not recognizing that um, the so-called so private water that usually rests with farmers, but could also rest with cities or companies. That private water uh, is sometimes been allocated in a uh, archaic system that is not very functional right now. And they have no way of reallocating that water to a better use, right? Because there's uh, from a from a market, there's a missing market there. So um, in my book, which I'll give you the link to, Living with Water Scarcity, and it's also in Spanish, which is free, uh, so I'm not selling it. Uh, I talk very much about how water should be divided immediately into two kinds of water. The social water that you have to talk about as a political social discussion. And then after you figured out how much of that to set aside, and if you're a poor country, that's not very much. But if you're a rich country, it's going to be much more. 
And then you have the leftover private water that can be allocated with prices or markets or whatever. And um, and then you are going to have a, a, a good a, a start at a water management system. The challenge is, is that um, when you bring in things like poverty and corruption, which are usually in the same country, then it's very sad that most of that water uh, that is scarce ends up going to the rich and the politically powerful, not to the poor and the politically weak. So as time goes on in these next five or 10 years, as you asked, I think that uh, the water sources to the poor are going to shrink unless their political governance system actually is pro-citizen, essentially, um, because those people are not going to be able to buy that water and the government has to get involved. And, and it's a very, very messy topic, uh, but I don't see it in general going well. There are some exceptions, which is great, and I would love to see exceptions everywhere. All right. Um, now, uh, you mentioned a couple of um, ways in which um, the water distribution could be improved. So I guess like the regular um, listener could think about a restriction to water consumption. Perhaps I think that's also in Europe. It's very often that uh, whenever you consume more than like a determined amount of gallons, then you have to pay more. Right. Uh, maybe the same applies to companies. So uh, my question for you would be, um, which like solution do you think could be feasible uh, for developing countries and for developed countries? And uh, so would and also would the solutions be the same? So should we treat the problem in the same way in developing countries and developed countries? Or should we have um, like kind of specific niche uh, solutions uh, for this problem? So the, the biggest difference between uh, developing countries or I, I call them poorer countries, actually, because developing, you know, I come from the U.S., which has some developing country problems, let's call it. So um, you have poor countries and richer countries. And the, the, the most important difference is that in richer countries, typically they have enough money to uh, build the correct infrastructure to manage water. In poor countries, they have to rely, for example, on rain instead of irrigation. They have to rely on rivers instead of uh, pipes and taps. Um, and uh, so, so money is very important in terms of dedication towards um, water infrastructure. And this, mean, this can cost one or 2% of GDP per year of investment. So that's a quite a significant amount of money, uh, especially when you look at some poor countries, the government is 10% of GDP, right? So that would be 10% of all government spending. Um, so that's uh, important. You have to have uh, a government support for that. Um, and, you know, the government can can incentivize the private market to do it. But there's so much involved there with that so-called social water that the private markets are not going to deliver these solutions. Uh, besides, then you go into cities, for example, which we think about when we go to the tap, we get water out of our tap. Those are all monopolies. The water uh, providers in cities are, are monopolies. There are in, in the poorest countries, especially, um, you know, private water vendors that will bring bottled water to your house or they'll bring a tanker full of water to your house. The water might be drinkable, might not be drinkable, but that's the private market trying to fill in for the, the failures of the monopolistic uh, public service provider. So um, you, you, you need to have uh, that monopoly also regulated so that it serves all customers instead of, for example, only serving part of the city, which usually is occupied by the rich people. So there's a real big political role of the regulator. Um, now, you, you briefly mentioned the, uh, the idea of the price going up for water if you consume more. That's called an increasing block rate. Um, I am one of, of many water economists who think that's a bad idea. And that is because um, the increasing block rates are very hard to design correctly. Um, and they don't make a lot of sense philosophically because what you want is that if water is becoming scarce because there's a drought or whatever, you want the price of all water to go up, not just a little bit of water. And uh, a solution I discuss in my book is how you should raise that price of water 
and it'll be above the delivery costs. So there's actually a, a profit. And that extra profit can be actually distributed back to customers in a way that is uh, very helpful to poor people. So people always get upset about raising the price of water because they think that will help, uh, uh, that'll hurt poor people. Um, but the uh, cheap water usually helps rich people because they have those taps. The poor don't have taps, et cetera. And if you raise that price to reduce uh, demand, but you also have excess money to help increase the service quality, then you have a much uh, better chance of helping poor people get water and be able to afford water. All right. Um, you mentioned that you, you wrote a book and it was um, you made it available for free. Uh, so then uh, now I, I want to go back a bit to the academic part of your, of mm -hmm. your life. Um, why would you why would you give it for free? And then uh, if so, um, yeah, what incentivized you to, to write this book? So um, I'll, I'll ask you, why why would I give away a book for free? Because perhaps you want to just allow anyone that is interested in the topic to read about it, not only people that have the resources. Yeah, that's basically it. Right. So I actually did my first book in 2011 and I was selling that book for the ebook e for $10 and the hard copy for $20. Then I did my second book, the one I just mentioned, Living with Water Scarcity, and I was going to sell it for $10 and the ebook for $5. And then I put it on the Internet and I sold a couple hundred copies and I thought, great. And then I but I want thousands of copies out there. And then for my birthday, I actually said, for my, happy birthday to me, I'm giving away my book. And why? Because the book was written. Right. I literally don't need the money. I mean, like I, I if for a couple, like a, even a thousand copies, I'm making a couple thousand dollars. I have a salary. I'm an academic. My, I'm paid literally to teach. So in that sense, it's why am I putting a price barrier between people? And more obviously, anybody can download the book. They can share the book. And then when I asked uh, for a Spanish translation, all the translators work for free because I was giving away the book also. So it changed the the discussion around this book from David's making money for this book to David wants people to be able to read this stuff uh, and, and learn from it and hopefully benefit themselves. Right. And by the way, I totally lost track of how many downloads there are of the book because I don't have a fucking counter. Excuse me. I don't have a, you can believe me if you want to. I don't have a counter on my website. So I don't even know how many copies are out there, but I, I think at least 10,000 copies have been downloaded. That, that's really, that's really amazing. So now uh, my last question would be something like uh, similar to what we just talked about. Um, so. I, so this is this initiative is great because people can actually um, just read read in that without paying and then you might be more interested in this topic perhaps because I read your book or something like this. So my question is, do you think um, maybe it's also a silly question, but I think it's also relevant. Um, there was a lot of discussion, for instance, on uh, fossil fuels and, 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 and green energy. So there are specific topics that receive a lot of attention in the media and generally like in academia, I think. Do you think that water, when it comes to water, uh, people like generally people like not scholars, but like students or just general people are aware of what's happening or um, because, for instance, in the case of green energy, uh, I think there is, yeah, as I mentioned, there's a big discussion in this, but I'm not sure whether you think um, that people are aware of the problem that we're facing with water because it's pretty much the, the like the, the basic, our basic need is water in our lives. Um, yeah, that's my question. Do you think there's yeah, enough awareness of this? It's a great, it's a great question. And I, I think 
So what a lot of people do is they think they make a mistake when they're approaching a water-related problem. Um, and it's the same as people making a mistake when they relate, when they approach, uh, you know, climate change, carbon, and, and green energy. So let me set it up with the, the clean energy thing. So some people say, oh, I'm concerned about the earth and the planet, and I therefore am going to do X. What is X? I'm going to turn off the light switch, or I'm going to put a low uh, uh, consumption light bulb in my house, right? Uh, when it comes to water, they say, I'm going to use a reusable water bottle, or I'm not going to buy bottled plastic water. Both of those cases completely miss like a thousand times bigger impact from many other aspects of water or climate change, right? So, um, and, and, and that's because I, what, of something I call the, the, the 2080 rule, uh, and it's not a rule, it's just a, a, a little bit of a joke, actually, which is that 20% of people, they want to do the right thing. We're having this conversation, you know, you're an engaged student, you want to do the right thing, and you're working hard, you're thinking about it. The rest of the planet, the other 80%, the other 90%, the other 98%, they don't care. They're busy. They have to pay their bills. They have to get to school. They're stuck in traffic. And so they don't want to think about water management. They don't want to think about green energy consumption. They just want to go on with their life. So what I say very often is we need to have policies usually using economic tools like prices that will tell people that water is scarce. So the price of water should go up or that oil is a bad idea. So a carbon tax should be imposed. And then people will go about their business and they'll be like, wow, that plane ticket to go to somewhere is now $100 more, or my electricity is more expensive, or water is more expensive, and therefore I will be careful and use less of it. And then you don't have to have this long discussion about your class consciousness and your Marxist awareness and how green you are. You could just say, I'm turning off the light because it's expensive to leave the light on. And I think that kind of policy discussion is much more helpful to the normal people who are just busy. Um, and that's why I, I make that one of my, my biggest, um, yeah, my biggest recommendations. All right. So in this way, um, I, I think what you're trying to say is that responsibility relies more on the on like political issues and, and, and generally like how we design the policies and not so much on the individual actions that everyone does. But then uh, if it, in this case, uh, what would be the role of a, of a regular person that doesn't have a say, in, that doesn't have a direct say in politics? Uh, so if I want to do something for water, then should I, uh, let, let, this is just a hypothetical um, case, should I donate money to an NGO or maybe be an activist um, for some kind of political group that uh, focuses on water. Like, what would you think it's the it's the, um, the role of a regular person if you can have access to direct political uh, decision making? Yeah, that's a great question, and I've um, I've thought about this a lot. And I think uh, I mean you mentioned some some good angles, but if you if you are gonna, if you want to put time into it because you're concerned about it, then I think um, for example, it would be good to uh, what what city are you in in Colombia? Uh, Kali. Kali. Okay, so you 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 go to the website for the water distributor for Kali, and you number one, you see if there is a website. Number two, you go and read what they say about the website about the quality of your water, how much it costs, where they get it from. Number three, you go to their meetings and you hear them talk about these things. Right? This is when you're putting time in. So it turns out that in many many government organiza uh, branches of government, they don't hear from citizens very often. And if you really want to put in time and you go to one of these public meetings, which they should be holding also because they're supposed to be accountable to the public, you, number one, you can learn a lot. Number two, you can have a massive impact because if, if you're one of four members of the public there, you're 25% of the audience, right? And you can ask a question and you can learn about things and you can learn if it's good or if it's bad because there's also a lot of paranoia and there's a lot of really well-run water 
distribution systems in the world, but people just don't know because they literally uh, uh, can't get into these meetings or they don't know that they're happening. So I think um, that's the, the best thing to do is to get involved in your local water situation um, and, and learn about that and potentially, you know, uh, find out what the real issues are and try to affect that local water situation. Right. Um, then as my last follow-up question, um, I, I see, so basically you're, you're saying um, it's, it's better to go local and see the problems that there's, you're facing, like that your local community is facing and try to tackle them there. Because what I also feel from people studying like my degree or, or, or in LUC is that we want to address uh, topics uh, from like the whole world and we're also concerned about uh, things that are happening perhaps even if I'm, if I'm in Colombia, a developing country, I would be also concerned about what's happening in Southeast Asia, I don't know, in Indonesia or something. Mm -hmm. And, I was, and I, they, I, then I would say, oh, I also have to solve this problem, not solve this problem, but at least I have to get involved get in engaged. Uh, in yes. What, yes, exactly. Right. So what you're saying here, it's more like try to go to your local community and make an impact there. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, yeah. And and if you want to have an impact on Southeast Asia, then get in touch with people like yourself who live in Southeast Asia, right? You know, talk to some Indonesians, some Thai people. Like English is a very handy language for the for the global global communications, and they'll be able to go into that meeting in Bangkok, and you'll be able to go to the one in Kali, and then your your friend down the road will go to the one in Bogota, right? And then you can exchange ideas with each other, and then you have number one friends, and number two you can exchange ideas and and best practices and so on, and then you're actually having an impact because you're encouraging those people to 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 uh, address these issues, and and this is you know I, I think by far the most effective way to do it. Right. Yes. Uh, do you have some final comments or remarks to give? No, this is great. I, I, I love these questions and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be on your podcast. So thanks for the invitation. That was Dr. David Zedlin from Leiden University. In this podcast description, you can find a link to Dr. Zedlin's website. A free PDF version of his book, Living with Water Scarcity, can be found in his website. If you're listening to this podcast and you would like to comment on it, email me at francisco.jose.lopez at outlook.com. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, goodbye.